France used women's poverty and fertility to expand the empire. And that is how Anne Roy, my seven greats grandmother, came to New France. Welcome to the Maple Family Treehouse, episode 10, Hello Sailor. I'm Kale Sharman, the host, writer, and producer of this show. I want to thank you for taking the time to be here today. I also want to acknowledge and thank the Haudenosaunee and Attawandaronk peoples, whose traditional land my ancestors have occupied over the last 300 years, as they slowly made their ways through the land surrounding the mouth of the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Great Lakes region. It is my hope that this podcast contributes to peace, caring, and sharing on and for this land. Good morning, Kale. It's Mom, and I just want to know why you want to know all this stuff. You want to know what part of my research is challenging? Tracing my family's names through the Atlantic slave trade. Dad, you have a half-brother. Family tree is just a bunch of names and dates. My objective in this podcast has always been to learn about how and why my ancestors came to Canada. I have been focusing on the migration stories of my ancestors to answer the question, how did I get here? As a white person born in Canada, this question is important because I'm obliged to uphold the treaties that made space for me and my ancestors to live. In the process of putting together the last several episodes, race, class, gender, and even age, have all been factors that played a part in the decision to migrate. And it is in telling these stories that I have been able to understand the context of what colonialism offered to my ancestors and indeed what it still offers me. A retrospective look back at the patterns of participation in colonialism reveals how colonial structures function. Colonialism either had a hand in creating the push and pull factors that influenced the decision to migrate or exploited vulnerabilities when it could serve to create a more powerful empire. The family story that I'm gonna tell you today is a rather unusual example of how colonial powers work. In this episode, I explore the maternal side of my family tree specifically my mother's paternal line, the Rodericks in New France. The immigration point for the Rodericks occurs around 1668, when a Portuguese sailor by the name of Joa Rodriguez arrived in New France. He purchased land in Riviere aux Roches in Cape Rouge, just west of Quebec City, traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat nation land that is now protected by the Huron-British Treaty of 1760. Before 1760, France assigned 1,200 soldiers to protect the habitants on unceded land between 1665 and 1668. 
And this is the context in which my ancestors who live in Quebec got their start. I am excited to tell you this story today because it is certainly not your average story you read about in history books. You might know the traditional story of New France and how it was settled in the early 1600s by efforts from people like Samuel de Champlain and his first recruit for settlement, Louis Hibert. Not all settlers who settled in New France, though, came from France. During the French regime, more than 900 immigrants arrived from Ireland, England, Germany, Switzerland, and Portugal, where my own seven greats grandfather was from, Joao Rodriguez. Joao Rodriguez was born in Lisbon, Portugal, around 1641. His parents were Francisco Rodriguez and Susana de Cruz. Conflicting documents indicate that part of the immigration process for Joao involved the Francization of his name to Jean Roderick. He also Francicized his parents' names on documents as well. In respect for Joao's wishes, I will from here on out in the story refer to him as Jean Roderick. Jean was a sailor. He probably settled uh, to New France shortly after 1665. Towards 1670, he was in Cape Rouge, just west of Quebec City. In July of that year, he sold the property that he owned. He bought and resold four others before his marriage in 1671. Now, I have to pause here because I've noticed a similar pattern in another family story I'm working on, a pattern of staying on a property for a year or so, selling and buying another, only to sell that property again a year or so later. And I don't know if it's a coincidence, but it's around the same time period, and it's also by a man who's not married yet. I've been trying to make sense of it. If anyone has any insight, let me know. I think... It is one of two things. Either these men move to a new place and purchase what is available first, and as they get to know the land, they make more informed purchases later, or, and this is the one I think it is, they make money by clearing and prepping land for subsequent builders, kind of like property flipping. And as they go, they also profit from selling wood to nearby towns for building or for fuel. I also imagine that as these men flip tracts of land, they make better and better purchases as the accumulation of profits uh, happens. This kind of side hustle certainly would fit in well with Jean Roderick's seasonal work as a sailor. He could clear land in the off seasons, although records indicate that he occasionally did go on voyages in the winter. So anyway, that is my little aside. Sorry about the detour. But these are sometimes the little things that take you down rabbit holes and reveal unexpected gems for family stories. Perhaps there is more to the story, but we'll have to wait and see. Okay, back to our story. When Jean finally settles on a good piece of land, he settles down marrying Anne Roy, 
on October 28, 1671. It is from this point on that Jean Roderick begins to put down roots. The story of Jean is interesting because it suggests a kind of hidden diversity. Many immigration stories traditionally involve people coming over in a family group or within a community group, often keeping connections with their loved ones in Europe, which in turn influences further immigration and builds communities here that mirror home. In this case though, it's completely different. Jean is out of his cultural element. He francicizes his name, the name of his parents, and marries a woman from Paris, France. While Jean and the rest of the 900 non-French immigrants added some cultural diversity, early settlers were predominantly men. There were informal attempts to shift the gender imbalance in the early 1600s. Merchants, seignorial landowners, and religious groups tried to recruit women, but were pretty much unsuccessful. Their attempts to recruit women kind of in pockets or individually from France between 1634 and 1662 only resulted in about 262 women settling in New France. There was still a need though to grow the population of New France. So in about 1663, France made a bold commitment to settle women in the fledgling colony over a 10 year period. And so between 1663 and 1673, close to 800 women came to New France. These women are known as the filles du roi, or daughters of the king. Of course, they weren't actual daughters of the king. Many of these women were poor and orphaned. In fact, one of the reasons why I like discussing the filles du roi on this show is because it's not the story that many people are familiar with from their high school history classes. In fact, without any context, people often get the impression that Fidoua were glorified sex workers, and it is much more complicated than that. Consider the following description on the website of the French-Canadian genealogist. The Salpêtrière was established in Paris in 1656 as a hospice for destitute women. It was not a pleasant place. It was dirty, cold, and overcrowded. Women might have ended up at Salpetriere for many reasons, physical, psychological, homelessness, or orphaned as children. We do know this, that more than half of the filles de roi were paternal orphans, and about 20% were maternal orphans. So sex work aside, there were various reasons why women might find themselves at Salpetriere. But when King Louis XIV directed his advisor, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, to recruit women for the passage to Canada, the Salpetriere was Paris's go-to source for immigrants. Anne Roy, my seven greats grandmother, however, does not seem to fit the mold of a fille de roi completely. Anne Roy has known parents who have an address and documents of identity and their relationship. Her parents are Francois Roy and Anne Bourdais. 
They were from the parish of Saint-Germain-Auxerrois in Paris. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The one way in which Anne Roy does fit the mold is that she came from a city. Men who immigrated to New France were mostly from rural settings. The Fidois, however, were mostly from urban settings. And in that case, Anne Roy was no exception. Her hometown of Saint-Germain-Auxerrois is smack dab in the middle of Paris, a neighborhood surrounded by Gothic churches situated right on the canal. She might have not been your stereotypical Fidehua, but she apparently did meet the long list of criteria that we know had been set for choosing a appropriate Fidehua. To be a daughter of the king, women had to be young, usually around 23 years old, give or take a few years, average or good looking, single, smart, strong, and in good health, with certified good morals. Yes, I said certified good morals. A prospective fidehua had to produce, quote unquote, a certificate of good conduct that would have been signed either by their priest or a judge in their hometown. So we know that Anne Roy fit the established criteria. Once chosen, the women were also provided a dowry of sorts. Before leaving France, each fidehua received a trousseau, which roughly translates to a hope chest, or in simpler terms, a home startup kit, if you will. This kit contained a comb, a belt, a pair of shoes, shoelaces, a pair of pantyhose, a pair of gloves, a bonnet, two coifs, a kind of hood, uh, and sewing supplies, which included a hundred needles, a thimble, thread, scissors, pins, all in a sewing case, along with some cloth. Oh, and two knives. Once on the ship, the women could expect a rough voyage of at least six weeks with other passengers, crew, animals, water reserves, cannons, and hordes of various merchandise. Passengers slept in extremely cramped quarters in the ship hold, and conditions were far from hygienic, especially when people were uh, overcome with seasickness. Almost 10% of passengers died on their way to North America. If they were lucky enough to survive the passage to Quebec City, the welcome that awaited the women was raucous and festive. And now, I imagine at this point, this is why the filles de roi were provided two knives. I guess the two knives would also be handy in a kitchen, but you never know. On the other hand, just in case the festivities went really well, wink, wink, there were civil and religious authorities on hand, along with, of course, 
all of the hopeful bachelors in the town where they landed. I have to admit at this point in the story, I'm wondering what state people would even be in after six weeks on the ship that I just described. I hope at least the women were able to get settled and rest uh, before the festivities. And I do not want to leave you with the impression that this was a free-for-all. It was not. Each Fidehua were sent to live with a respectable family. And I hope they had cert certificates too to prove that. It would be only be fair. If they were not placed with a respectable family, they stayed in a convent. Regardless of where they stayed, they were all taught how to cook, clean, and sew. Essentially, how to be a good wife and mother. And I am sure once they arrived in the matrimonial home, uh, remember this is a frontier homestead that had been kept up by a single man, well, let's just say that I'm sure there was plenty of room and leniency to work on honing their housekeeping and homesteading skills. All joking aside though, I'm sure this description leaves you with a sense that the first settlers of New France were a hardy group who endured incredible hardship. Not only did they have to deal with the harsh Canadian winters, but they needed to be self-sufficient. After all, French officials were more concerned with trade. Some sources suggest that the neglect of the needs of the settlers is one of the reasons for the colony's eventual fall to the British in 1765 ending two centuries of strategic settlement in New France. Politically, though, we know how this story ends. That part is obvious. Did the plan to influence population, though, work? According to Jay Gagné, author of the book The King's Daughters and Founding Mothers, Fille de Roi, 1663 1663-1673, the Fidehois represent only 8% of the total immigrants to Canada under the French regime. Yet, they account for nearly half of the women who immigrated to Canada in the colony's 150-year history, and the population of New France rose to 6,700 people, an increase of 168% during its 10-year initiative. There is so much more to this story than just the obvious population statistics, though. To really understand the influence of this group of several hundred women and the influence they had on Canada and arguably North America, you have to realize that the population growth was just the tip of the iceberg. Daughters of the king were expected to also standardize the French language spoken in Quebec. Remember when I told you that most of the men who settled in New France were from rural areas? Well, they also brought with them a mishmash of French patois. Filles de Roi were chosen from Paris in particular to bring with them Parisian French. This would have been particularly handy for Jean Roderick, whose first language was Portuguese, 
And if you want to know just how influential the linguistic and cultural presence of the king's daughters were, know this. Most people today who recognize themselves as French Canadian have several filles de roi in their family trees. If you want a visual example, consider looking at the photography of a monument called the Fille de Roi family tree at the Canadian Museum of History. There's a physical family tree that's been built based on the legacy of Catherine Watt, one of the first Fille de Roi to arrive in Canada. She had 11 children, 65 grandchildren, and 344 great-grandchildren. And all of these people are represented on this tree monument as either a trunk, branches, or leaves. It's a brilliant exhibit because when you see it, you get a physical experience of the impact that these women have on not only our country, but North America. Please realize that the descendants of the king's daughters here in Canada migrated too. Here I sit in Ontario making this podcast. But there are even famous examples, and I don't have to go far to look either. I can provide an example of the wider cultural influence of the king's daughters from the Roderick branch of my family tree. Here it is. I had always heard stories of Roderick connections to Louisiana. My grandfather claimed that he was related to the famous artist of the Blue Dog paintings, George Roderick. He never elaborated on the connection though, so I took it with a grain of salt. But in doing the research to put this episode together, I found the exact connection. And indeed, the Rodericks in my family are related to George Roderick. The closest common ancestor that we have is Rennie Roderick, who is the son of, you guessed it, Jean Roderick and Anne Roy, the subjects of this podcast. In the Roderick branch alone, there is four de Roy, and there is at least as many in my other maternal branches. Suffice it to say, that this will not be the last time that you hear about the King's Daughters in this podcast. They deserve so much more attention than what they get. So to put out a little teaser here for a future episode, while putting the finishing touches on this show, I found two research articles on Anne Roy. Unfortunately, they proved to be a bit of a challenge to access and use for this particular episode, but I'm working on it. Actually, you know what? On second thought, I need to moan and groan for a minute here. I was so excited to find those two journal articles on Anne Roy. They are held by a genealogical society though that is solely focused on Fidehua, but to ha- you have to be a member to access the research articles. I thought to myself, sure, why not? I'll become a member. I click on the join button only to get a link to a printable PDF with instructions to fill out the application in pen. 
attach verifiable cited documentation of my connection to one of the listed fidroits. I then put my application package in this thing called an envelope with something called a $35 check. And when all of these things are sealed in an envelope, I put enough postage on this envelope to support 11 generations of printed documentation. And then I'm supposed to put the completed application package in something called a mailbox. Several weeks later, I can expect a reply in the mail, and this reply will tell me if I am approved. And if I am approved, I will get a certificate of authenticity and a passcode to their journal archive. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, don't be so cynical. And you might be right. Perhaps the access that I'll get to the research archive will be worth all the old school bureaucracy that I have to wade through. If the archives are anything like their membership process though, <laughs> I feel like I'm taking a gamble. It feels like a romantic genealogical version of snake oil. For $35, maybe I'll try it. I have to be honest though, my heart is not into these kinds of group memberships. And I really feel conflicted and torn about it. Let me explain. The humanist in me wants to support people who do research that I'm benefiting from. But the bureaucracy and the certification program ruins it for me, just ruins it. I want to reflect for a moment on our story today. The fact that the disadvantaged position of these women was used to the advantage of imperial expansion should be obvious. But I wonder if we run the risk of glorifying that exploitation in ways we sometimes promote the research and stories of the Fidua today. It may seem like a harmless and romantic token to apply for certified recognition as a descendant of a Fidua but I don't feel the slightest need to get my lineage approved, nor do I want to further validate and romanticize a system of power that used the poverty and fertility of young, beautiful women in Paris for colonial expansion. At the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that themes were beginning to emerge in my family histories to support not only the obvious racial inequalities in colonialism, but also the intersections of class, gender, and even age. This story brings all of these elements together. The documentation on the criteria for recruiting Fidua illustrate my point clearly. This is not a story of romantic matchmaking. This is a story of a struggling imperial power becoming politically landlocked in North America, whose best shot at survival was a population boom. They needed young, fertile, strong French women from Paris to make that happen. But make no mistake, their unfortunate economic circumstances were the largest slice of the criteria pie. This is why I made the conscious decision to mention the Salpetriere. With more than one quarter of all of the several hundred feet Roy coming from this single institution for destitute women, the point is illustrated clearly. 
And listen, I don't want to pick on this organization. They're not the only organization doing this sort of thing. And there is obviously a demand from the public. For instance, when talking to a relative about the Limburner loyalists in my family, my relative pointed out that through this research that I've done, I had everything I needed to join the Empire, United Empire Loyalist Society. It is essentially the same kind of group offering similar membership and certification. My response was the same. Listen, I don't want to appear as if I'm getting on some high horse here. I realize that the genealogical work that I'm doing and the reasons that I give for doing it serve the very same needs within me that most likely exist for the people creating and attending these cultural organizations. I just want to be a part of a conversation that is framing these same family stories to make the wisdom that they offer relevant and accessible to thinking about current power systems today. Jean and Anne's stories contribute to that, and I will not romanticize it. As a sailor who worked seasonally, Jean might have been away for stretches of time, leaving Anne alone with a brood of children on a frontier homestead. And this is most certainly not something that I should be glossing over in a line or two at the end of this episode. But maybe this is why I'm so enticed by those two research articles on Anne Roy. That is the antidote to the snake oil. I will get a hold of these two articles and I'll be back with the details of the story soon. For today, though, the information so far paints an interesting picture. One of New France's early settlers, who includes a sailor from Portugal and a so-called king's daughter from Paris, who together built not only a family, but influenced the culture of Quebec and arguably North America. And every ounce of credit goes to the people whose very identities at the intersections of race, class, gender, and age were used as resources for power, not the formal efforts of the system. And it is for this reason alone that I will access those articles of Anne Roy and refuse a certification and recognition. Hey, before you go, I want to introduce you to my mom, Marie. It is her paternal line that you heard about in this episode 10, Hello Sailor. Marie was born in Montreal, Quebec. She came to Ontario as a child when my grandfather was looking for work. My parents are some of the hardest working people I know. Growing up, my mother often worked two or three jobs. These jobs were usually in factories or in the service industry. I worked in the service industry too for a while as a hairdresser. I found customer relations simple when you held a pair of scissors in your hand. My mother, though, was a server in the food industry for decades, and that deserves praise and recognition. I tried food service out once, and after about a week, I was ready to give up on humanity, so I quit. I couldn't even imagine doing it for decades. I think that accomplishment is an indicator of her personality. She is great with people kind, caring, funny, with a flair for the dramatic. 
The most amazing thing about my mom, though, is that she makes even the hardest work look easy. After putting together this story about her ancestors, it's plain as day why. She comes from people that can build a life from scratch with a combination of hard work, the right tools, and the wisdom and knowledge for how to put those two things together. Thank you, Mom. I can say without a shred of doubt that Anne Roy would see her legacy in the life that you've led. Thank you for listening to the Maple Family Treehouse. I want to invite the listeners to my website to look at the notes and sources I used for this episode. This episode is a bit different from other ones I've done in the past in that I rely heavily on the genealogical work of other people who have not only done the research before me, but have translated information from French documents into English. My website is maplefamilytreehouse.squarespace.com. If you would like bonus material and some behind the scenes discussion about episodes, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. Supporting the show either through Patreon or directly at anchor.fm will ensure commercial free content that's original. It also provides access to things like journal articles and databases, etc. Honestly though, I'm just glad you're here. But I want this to be a two-way conversation, so give me some feedback at anchor.fm where you can leave a voicemail or via my website, maplefamilytreehouse.squarespace.com or by email at maplefamilytreehouse at gmail.com. See you in two weeks. Cheers, Mesamie.